Welcome to the Southwest Climate Podcast October version. Mike Crimmins. Hey, Zach. It's still October, right? It's almost November, actually. It's the end of October. So, wow. Yeah, we haven't we haven't gotten together in quite a while. We, That's right. This is a busy the monsoon, October. Yeah. The monsoon was, was, was still going officially. In fact, I have to say that this is our second podcast today. Uh, so those of you be on the lookout for a separate podcast where we, we could not let the monsoon die without uh, getting our, our friend and Phoenix colleague at the National Weather Service to give us his take on on, on the monsoon. So be on the lookout for that. And, and this particular podcast, Mike, we'll, we'll do our normal stick, which um, gets people up to date on what's happened uh, recently uh, around the Southwest. We'll dive a little bit into uh, water issues because it's the time of year when all eyes in terms of climate impacts turn to our, our, our rivers and the water supply and the snowpacks in the upper basin. And, you know, we've got a uh, full-fledged uh, or close to a full-fledged La Nina. Uh, in the work. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But other than that, Mike, how do you feel? I feel good. I feel good. I, the weather, it's just the magical weather turn down here in the Southwest. I, you know, you know how obsessive we talk about dew points kind of early in the monsoon season and like, okay, we're not at 54, 55, or it's got to be a little higher. We can't do that. I was so done with dew points in uh, <laughs> September. I couldn't wait for it to dry out. And so it's actually Finally, the dew points are down in the 20s here in Tucson today, and the mosquitoes have actually started to wane. So, um, well, so that's what I was going to ask you because I still, I'm, I'm still being ravaged every time I go on my porch with mosquitoes. So, what is it? Is it like, is it the temperature? Is it the humidity? Is it the, the, the when, when do those things go away? Southwest uh, Entomology Podcast, right here. <laughs> I, so what I heard on the news, and it was an entomologist, it, it's something to do with like these cycles or broods of mosquitoes and that if it doesn't rain for like two weeks, you get this start to, they start to decline and wane. But I guess if you have standing water or wet soil. I need to drain, drain my swamp cooler. That's, that's what I decided last weekend. I was like, do you think they're in there? Do? I don't know. I mean, it's standing water. You should take care of that. I will. <laughs> what else do we have to talk about? No, okay. So I don't even know. That's the end of the uh, Southwest Entomology Podcast. Maybe let's 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 start, Mike, with a recap of you know we came. Oh no, what we have to start with um, is to mention the final results of our Southwest Monsoon Fantasy Forecast, which, I, by all accounts, and 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 mine is the most important, is it was a it was a real big success. Uh, so I just want to thank everybody for, for playing. It was a lot of fun. And we had some intrigue at the end. We crowned uh, a winner and a, and a second place. And they got these really cool uh, weather stations. Uh, we're going to do it again next year and, and the years after. So be on the lookout. But the intrigue happened that the entire leaderboard, the top 10 leaderboard, um, shook up in the last couple days because Albuquerque and El Paso got some rain on the last night, I think. And so the winner whose handle is Esma Grace, and there was a write-up of her and the, and, and, and the second place called Mesquite Nerd in the, in the Arizona Daily Star on October 5th. She vaulted, Esma Grace vaulted to first place, I think from like eighth or ninth. And, and uh, the second place vaulted, um, you know, from, from behind as well. So that was, that was pretty fun that that unfolded. And, and more importantly, they supplanted 
our own Ben McMahon as winners. He almost won the inaugural Monsoon Fantasy. So it almost looked like a super inside job right at the yeah, end. Yeah, uh, and so we're really, really happy about that. Yeah, so the, the funny thing, I'll just tell this little story, and it's in the Arizona Daily Star, but the winner actually had just recently moved to Tucson from outside of the Southwest and was like, uh, you know, a, a, a weather person, but, you know, obviously hadn't experienced the monsoon. So I, I thought that was really great in, the, in part because there is randomness to figuring out the monsoon. And I think we 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 at least have uh, an N of one uh, in our data set of, of that. So the winner basically knew nothing about the monsoon. And uh, yeah, so so kudos to her. Um, Mike, you finished uh, a whopping, what, 120th? I, wanna, I think it was 103. Come on, oh, man. Sorry about that. I did beat you. I came in at, at 80th. And uh, yeah, it was interesting in the sense, and one of the things that we're going to think through next year is, you know, September was really dry across Southwest, which we uh, were, were talking about uh, last last podcast. And a lot of people scored. And in fact, Ben was gaming the game by basically going near near zero on all of the all of the cities. And so we got to figure out, it's just more, the median is right around zero for um, September rainfall. And so it's, it's kind of an easy guess to go dry. And so we'll have to think through a little bit about how to make September not so easy to game and, 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 and whatnot. But we'll, we'll think through that. I don't know, Mike, uh, do you have fun playing it? Yeah, it's, I totally did. And I, I need to, we got to talk about that September a little bit more too, because yeah, I get it that the median, yeah, I suppose that's right. And the median is zero, but there is like the shakeup that occurred and you can think of plenty of Septembers in the past where at least one of those cities is going to get, it's going to get whacked with something. So it's not a lot different than me playing my climatology every month, which clearly doesn't work in instances like this summer. No, it's just like, if you're, if you're playing by the numbers and if the median is zero, then it's hard to argue for guessing anything other than, the median that's basically that's basically you're right it's basically climatology but in in these distributions that are skewed average isn't the greatest example you know i think average in in tucson is something like i think they september brings an inch or a little bit more than an inch so uh, which we didn't get and had we got it uh, tucson would have finished second um but uh yeah so i don't i don't know i think we should move on from the monsoon we do a nice recap in that other pod that's going to drop soon after this one uh unless you have any final parting shots on on september which we didn't really talk about in that other podcast the core of the monsoon activity really ended the first week of september <clears throat> and then it actually totally cool we we bracket the monsoon season september 15th through i'm sorry june 15th through september 30th and we, we count that, but the, you know, the rainfall that was occurring later in the month was really, we call it transitional. It was more of the kind of the mid-latitude kind of fall winter signal already creeping in. And, and that kind of segues in, into what we saw the rest of the, um, even through the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So what do, let's talk a little bit about, a little bit about October because it hasn't been completely dry. There's been some uh, rainfall up in the, in the Northern half of uh, the, the Southwest and in the Southern, I don't, I don't think I think just Trace and, and, and Tucson, Phoenix got a little bit in, in October and, and, and Flagstaff's gotten inch and a half or a little bit more. But aside from that, it's, I believe, Mike, you were saying that it's been a fairly active, which is common, I guess, but it's been a fairly active 
October. Can you speak a little bit more about what's what's sort of been going on uh, synoptically or regionally? Yeah. So again, kind of just thinking about that transition from, you know, real good subtropical ridge position that we saw much of the summer, you know, displaced to the north, shifting over to the east and sometimes to the northwest of us, keeping us under that deep easterly flow. It started to retreat by the beginning of September. So we had a really pretty good event at the, the, the end of August into the beginning of September. And then it, it did slow down quite a bit the middle part of September. And then we did see a couple of events that we would consider more transition. And so that's through the end of September. The last four weeks, you know, the, the monsoon ridge retreated back to the south, kind of got bumped over to the east. And we, we did get to this more upper level westerly flow. Again, that more mid-latitude storm track kind of dropping down. And across the whole kind of eastern Pacific, you saw a pretty strong sort of trough ridge trough pattern. And so what it did is it allowed a, several numerous events actually to drop down the west coast. Um, and it's brought precipitation to the Pacific Northwest, to much of California, um, even into Southern California. And then that has caused our temperatures to kind of bob up and down. And we've had a couple of, of uh, pretty strong, cool events that has led to some freezing in parts of Arizona, which is kind of a, about on track as far as first freezes for, uh, like, say, the southeast part of Arizona in particular. And then I think you kind of hinted at this, too. There was a really strong atmospheric river uh, rain event that really clobbered northern California uh, within this last week. That trough actually moved across and has cooled us down. And so we're now kind of in this roller coaster of typical fall weather here in the Southwest. Yeah. So that atmospheric river was, is worth talking about because it, it, it's, it was in the news quite a bit and it was actually an impressive storm. I believe some places experienced uh, like Sacramento, I think experienced its wettest day on record. I think five inches or, or so fell. I'm just looking at the precipitation map and of the West here. And there's this incredible line of above average monthly values that, that, that basically go Southwest to Northeast across the entire West. And you, you basically just see where this, this atmospheric river trended. And, and there are these like super impressive, they're subtropical cyclones. I mean, I believe they had hurricane force winds. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there, Mike, or maybe it's, they, they, there was really strong, strong winds associated with this. But when you look at the satellite image of these things, you know, you get this counterclockwise rotation uh, and it's just flinging these, you know, to the south of it, it's just flinging these bands of clouds, vapor, high, high amounts of vapor, kind of just like as if you were sort of just like twirling around and you can imagine what 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 uh, the wake of of that twirling would do to the air and that, that's what was going on and and for three days you know basically it, it, the 14 day total as of a couple of days ago along the coast sort of right right from San Francisco and north was you know 11 11 and a half inches of rain and then inland in the mountains it was over 13 inches or 12 inches rather you know so huge amounts of of, of water that was impressive, not just for their water, but an important event to sort of shut down, at least in that part of, of California, the, the fire season, or that's what people, people think. I mean, it blanketed uh, the mountains with snow. So really, really helpful to, to shut down what is often still a, a fire season up in that part of the country. I think Sacramento up until 
it was either this event or an earlier event in October had set, uh, was either the longest or the second longest dry streak from last spring to this particular event. So they, you know, that kind of points back to what the fire activity they were seeing there. It was very, very dry, very, very hot summer in it. You have to go all the way back to last winter. Again, that's, that is kind of their dry spell, but this one was particularly dry. And as you said, it, that, that atmospheric river was part of what they call sort of bomb cyclogenesis. And so it's, it's the, the idea of like, you have those nor'easters on the East coast and actually a nor'easter was occurring at that same time as this one uh, was occurring. And so they had really, really rapid intensification of that low pressure system. One of the buoys off of the California coast set a record, or maybe it was off the Pacific Northwest coast set a record low barometric pressure. And that's, you know, hard to do. And that's going to be indicative of that pressure gradient that's going to drive the winds that you were talking about as well. And yeah, so this map I'm looking at here from uh, NOAA and the, um, uh, their precip analysis was showing for the last, in the last 30 days, the kind of a, a stripe from San Francisco to Sacramento, and it reaches all the way up into um, parts of South East Oregon have anywhere from 400 to 600% of average for this last 30 day period. So how do those things, how do the bomb cyclones as they're known now colloquially, but they have a scientific <laughs> root to the word, how do they actually form? You know, the ones I'm most familiar with are on the, the East coast. This one's a little bit different. The ones on the East coast end up having really rapid intensification due to really, really strong temperature gradients that emerge between the warm Gulf uh, waters, the Gulf Stream off the East Coast, that typically is interacting with super cold, dry air coming out of Canada. And so when you when you collide those air masses within a low pressure system, you can have really, really rapid deepening and, and falls in pressure. So on the West Coast, you don't, you don't have real warm water. So I, I actually don't know what caused dynamically, it must have been some some really really circuitous route in the jet stream that, that actually, you know, can lead to helping sort of enhance vorticity and enhance that deepening of the low pressure system. And it might be, and I haven't really looked back at this. It might've been one of those typhoons that got absorbed into the mean flow that caused the real strong kind of wavy jet stream pattern, which would be, which would be part of that intensification as well. I bet if we kind of dig into that a little bit, that's this is the time of year that you do see that kind of absorption of those, those tropical storms into the mean flow that will then impact the weather downstream. Yeah, so it's worth mentioning a couple of things related to this atmospheric river. You know, the first is that Southern California did not receive nearly the, 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 the brunt of the rainfall that sort of the northern half of California. And so there's still a bunch of fire risk for, for Southern California. In fact, I think it was what 2017, the big late season Thomas fire uh, in Southern California happened. So, and that was in December. <clears throat> so there's still that chance. And uh, of course there's the, the Santa Ana winds uh, at this time of year, um, which can really drive the, those fires. But, you know, I, I, I am following uh, a few people, um, you know, fire people. Um, and they expect that they think that this event probably shut down the, the, the fire risk or at, at least severely curtailed it for the northern half of, of, of California. So, that, so that's a good thing. The other yeah. thing is uh, about the atmospheric rivers is these are events that are common. Um, they happen at this time of year and they often, they're the events that generate the really extreme precipitation 
days, if you will. So uh, normally when you have exceedingly high rain or, or, or snow, not normally, but often they're associated with these atmospheric rivers. And again, it's just, it's because that the, the circulation in the, in, in the low pressure is, is helping to funnel just really moisture laden air up into California and it, it, it goes inland too. And Mike, there's usually a, a sort of climatology uh, associated with these ARs is, is, are you familiar with the, the climatology of the AR, like the seasonal progression of them? Do they, they sort of start more, the, the frequency is higher early on in the, in the winter north and, and sort of progresses south or is it vice versa? Do you know, do you know that offhand? Well, well, I mean, if you think about it in terms of sort of the mean jet, str- jet stream position, it would, it would have a, a more northerly track and that would then gradually move a little bit further south as you had the mean jet kind of drop a little bit further north, just, just due to the whole northern hemisphere cooling off and looking where that temperature gradient is occurring. So early on in the season, temperature gradient typically is more northerly displaced. And as the whole hemisphere cools off, it, it comes um, further south. But I think that this one is not uncommon for October. It's it's definitely a kind of a wintertime thing. But you had looked at a paper too recently, and we, and we should kind of dig back into this. We've done some atmospheric river climatology discussions in the past. I don't have them quite on, on the tips of my fingers right now, but this one was really quite fantastic. And the timing couldn't have been better because October rain is really important for helping tamp down and end the fire season in California and, um, you know, transitioning into having a better season, hopefully after this. And the other thing that's really important is particularly after a long dry spell is it, the early season puts down soil moisture, which makes the subsequent snowpack and and the water efficiency that comes from that snowpack much greater in the, in, in the spring. So it, 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 it's a nice, uh, vanguard, I think, to, you know, spring runoff, a good spring runoff season. Of course, you know, if it shuts down and, and, and no more rain and snow happens, which, which, which is possible, I guess, then it, this goes to waste, but it's, it's good to get this in early, saturate those soils, particularly with the big event. Um, of course, you know, the flip side of that is I'm sure there was, there was a lot of flooding, a lot of landslides. I'm, I'm sure there was, um, some destruction and I, I haven't not up on the news to see if, there, there was more, more, more tragic destruction, but you know, these are big events. And so those bring uh, pretty, pretty high impact, but the good side of it again is, is, is sort of laying the environmental conditions in, in a way that favor sort of a good water season. Yeah, definitely. And, and the, the track of that, this particular sort of plume of precipitation that was fed by the atmospheric river, it, it occurred over some of those mega fires that had occurred over Northern California. So there was a lot of concern about flooding and um, debris flows with all of that precipitation happening exactly in the same area where those large fires had, had been burning just, you know, weeks to months prior. So in the Northern Sierras, I was looking at the California Department of Water Resources and they track sort of seven or eight high elevation uh, stations and <clears throat> monitor precipitation. And currently more rainfall has fell through through the date through October 27th than at any time previously. So it's off to a gangbuster start, um, which is which is which is a good sign. I mean, in fact, the same amount of rainfall, so 12 and a half inches on average, fell across these 
one, two, three, four, five, six, eight stations. That and and that amount usually doesn't happen until mid December. So uh, we're close, like a month and a half, close to two months in advance. But you know, we'll see. We'll see how things go. But but good start. We like that. We hope that happens uh, in the in the Upper Colorado River basin as well for us. But the other thing I wanted to say about, about the climatology of the ARs is, yeah, the the work, the research that I was doing, just looking at a couple papers, was trying to look at the the ENSO signal and whether or not these ARs are more common in La Nina events, which is what we're currently experiencing than El Nino or neutral events. And, and they are. So these are, I don't have an explanation for that off the top of my head, maybe you do, but statistically the association is greater for uh, the frequency of atmospheric rivers in, in La Nina events than, than, than not. Yeah, I was going to add to just on the, to draw the that kind of weather pattern closer to the Southwest is that in the last 30 days, we did end up having a couple of rain events that did impact sort of Northern parts of Arizona, even a little bit of precipitation in far uh, Southwestern Arizona and then parts of Northern New Mexico. So we weren't completely left out of these, uh, these events. It hasn't been super wet here and the storm track really has been to the North of us, but a couple of these lows as they've come across, they definitely have cooled temperatures out. Some of them actually did drag some precip through across the region. So, you know, not too bad. We're, you know, we're still, there's plenty of good soil moisture from the monsoon, you know, that kind of came into retreat in September and we've had these subsequent events. So it's not like we completely dried out and it's cooled off. So this is, you know, we're, we're in a good spot as far as sort of thinking about short-term drought uh, relief. Yeah, that's a good segue because unless you have other thing you want to, any, anything else you want to add about about October in the last couple of months. And if you don't, I think the good segue is when we talk about climate, there's always like something good and there's always the flip side, something bad. So before I go there, that'll be my, my tease, Mike. Is there anything else you want to say about, uh, about let's say the last couple of months? This October has been, it's been kind of unremarkable. It's been nicely close to average in a lot of respects. It's even the temps have been fairly moderate over the last 30 days. Okay, great. So the positive, according to me, is that, you know, the, at least the short-term drought conditions are in a much better place than they were a year ago. Again, we've talked about maybe the drought monitor isn't the best uh, tool to, to compare across time, but it gives us an indication. And, and a year ago, it wasn't even as, as, as bad as it had gotten because we, you know, experienced a really dry, dry winter, but just in comparison to one year ago, all of our, well, you know, three quarters of Arizona was, was in a sort of extreme drought um, category uh, with some exceptional drought. And those are like the two highest uh, drought monitor categories. You know, now we're in a much better situation. Of course, there's still drought, but most of Arizona is uh, either a moderate drought or, or just abnormally dry, which the drought monitor doesn't consider a drought category. So there's been improvements largely from the monsoon that, that we just experienced. Um, so that I think is the good, Mike, is there other goods that, you know, we, we, we want to talk about besides the drought conditions? The monsoon was so overwhelming. I mean, like I feel exhausted from all that all right. precipitation. Okay. So the, yeah, there's always, something good and something bad um, that we can talk about. You know, there's a flip, there, you know, a good, mo a good um, 
wet monsoon, you know, you know, brings with it, you know, higher flood risk and, and flash flood risk, right? So yeah, there's, I got there's you. always the flip side. So maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be such a downer, but the negative, I think is, as we think about this winter season, it comes into focus and that's, uh, and that's the water situation. And I, I think it's, it's gained uh, quite a bit of, 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 of press, particularly, you know, the Colorado River, everybody focuses on much less so the, the Rio Grande, but those are the two main sort of arteries that, you know, provide a lot of, you know, water for, you know, urban populations, you know, rural farming and whatnot. Colorado, 40 million people across seven states and also uh, Mexico. So it's, so it's a big deal. You know, I was, I was digging around. Uh, there's been some really good information. I, for those who haven't seen John Fleck's blog on, uh, he's a really one of the go-to experts on, on Western water, Colorado water. He's had some really great information. Just a couple things to note. Lake Mead is currently at, and it has a water level elevation of 1,067 feet above sea level. And the last time it was this low was 85 years ago in 1937, as it was filling. Right, so we're at really historical lows in Lake Mead. But the important thing about the Colorado is you have to think of the Colorado River, not just from one basin perspective, but Lakes Mead and Powell are really operated in synergy and it's super complex. I'm not gonna try to like parse out like how it all works, but Lake Mead and Lake Powell have to be thought of as like a, like a giant reservoir, one reservoir, even though they're two. And so Lake Powell is currently has a elevation of 35, 3,545 feet above sea level. And the last time it was this low was in 1969 or 60 years ago. You know, that was just after it was starting to fill. Actually, no, it, it was about five and a half years after it started to fill. So we're, the point here is we're at these really low levels. Lake Mead is at a level that is triggering some conservation measures that largely affect Arizona. Yeah, the projections aren't very good. And so why I bring all this up is the winter here is so crucial, I think, for our water supplies. And there hasn't been many winters that have actually refilled, partial, even partially refilled some of these, these two reservoirs. The monsoon was wet in a lot of places, but that does not that much for our water supply. I think that the upper basin is not monsoon country, right? And so I think that, you know, so like the Colorado River Basin and then the Elephant Butte is, it was in a part of the, the monsoon that actually didn't see as much activity, you know? So we, so we had some water situations that didn't get hammered as much by the monsoon signal as we would have maybe hoped. And they also don't typically have much, the needle doesn't move a lot during with summer precip anyways. Right. I do want to point out, though, that Salt River Project actually saw, uh, like Roosevelt, it, it actually gained elevation because it was, you know, that the salt watershed just was kind of part of one of the epicenters of the monsoon activity. But that's such a kind of a local example where the monsoon can sort of like start to kind of turn. But and again, it, it, it typically Roosevelt loses water through the summer regardless of the monsoon, it did not fill a lot, um, but it filled a little, which is un really, really unusual, right? And it, it, it didn't, it's still down from 
where it was a couple of years ago. But I thought that was kind of an interesting comparing and contrasting to some way some of the other reservoirs responded through the monsoon season. That is a good point. We've talked about this before. And, and another important part of this is the conditioning of the soil moisture can, can help during the monsoon season. Although I'm not sure I completely buy that because like, wouldn't it, no matter how big, like isn't the soils like after like a three week dry spell, probably exhausted and, and, and dry now anyway, or, or, or does it stay, does it stay around for more than that? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I've got a, a project I'm working on with a graduate student where we're looking at sort of the, the time lag between water and soil moisture and at about 10 centimeters, it's about the variability over about four weeks. And as you get down to like 20 and 30 centimeters, it extends out several months. So you can start to see the seasonality of precip show up, you know, at a three to six month time lag at about 25 to 30 centimeters. Well, then that does matter. Yeah. So maybe we're not seeing it explicitly the monsoon effect, but, but, but it's there for some of these basins, but you're right. Like Colorado. Yeah. It's not, it's not monsoonal. And, and for the Colorado river, you know, 70, 80%, I believe of, of, of the water that flows through the Colorado river really comes from the seasonal winter snowpack. So, and I, I would also say, I looked a little bit on the Rio Grande, particularly Elephant Butte, uh, which is a big reservoir sort of just North of Las Cruces. It's a, I think it's something like 2 million acre feet. And to put that in perspective, I believe Lake Mead is 25 million acre feet. So prior to the monsoon, the projections for Elephant Butte were for it to have te just 10,000 acre feet remaining in it at the end of uh, the water year. So at the end of September, my recollection, this is the lowest it would have been uh, since it began filming. And the monsoon itself, you know, like you said, it wasn't as wet as it was, say, in central Arizona, but it wasn't like it was last year. It did add water to Elephant Butte, uh, and it rose from, from a projected 10,000 acre feet to 60,000 acre feet, which is still only 1.5% full. So the, all that is to say is the, 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 the Rio Grande, the major artery there, is in a situation where it needs... Um, if it's if it's a dry winter in the in the Colorado mountains and the Utah mountains, it's going to be uh, again this water uh, conversation is is going to be even more critical that yeah people are paying attention and, and and figuring out solutions. It did rain across much of the Colorado River basin, so it wasn't it wasn't epically bad. Utah had a pretty good monsoon. I mean, these are areas that are not core of monsoon, but the upper basin did see precipitation this last summer, which is, it did not, you know, the previous summer very much at all. So already, I think the monsoon has set the stage for if we can get precip on top of, you know, decently recharged soils, they have a much better opportunity, as you noted, to turn into much better runoff efficiency um, into next spring. But now it's like the big question mark is, is okay, what's going to happen, you know, for the Southwest uh, going forward for this upcoming winter. And I'm thinking more broadly about Colorado, Utah, as well as Arizona, New Mexico. Right. And so that brings us to, I think, the, the La Nina that is, is brewing. First of all, it's a second year La Nina. It's a double dip La Nina, Mike. And uh, um, that is, again, that it's not a slam dunk, but it tips the scales, at least for the Southwest. So we should talk about the difference between sort of the 
southern part of the U.S. and 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 just like north of of Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado, because there is a sort of a hinge line when it comes to a sort of ENSO precipitation signal. Um, but this La Nina does tip the scales towards a a, a drier winter for us. Yes. <laughs> I love I love talking about. I love talking about Enso because at some point it, it, it feels like, well, what more can we say? You know? I know. And we, we joke that we've said that we, all we need to do is splice in some of our old conversations here. So the last double dip La Nina event was 2011. What was it? It was the 10, 11 La Nina and then 11, 12, 11, 12 was the last double dip La Nina we saw. And I guess there's there's not really any question whether or not the La Nina is going to occur. It's already actually it's tip it's officially present during given the NOAA advisory. It's now a question of what will be its ultimate magnitude and how long will it last. And that I think does translate into the potential teleconnections across the Southwest. And I think is the southern part of Arizona, southern part of New Mexico, tend to have a much more reliable dry signal than say even the Northern parts of the Southwest. And as you get in the upper Colorado river basin, there's not actually a very good La Nina, El Nino correlation with winter precipitation. All right, a couple of things. Cause I think there is something that we can talk about. One, it's this idea of a double dip, which is uh, more common in La Nina's and El Nino's. And we can talk a little bit about, about that. The other thing is, is I, I stumbled upon, I love Noah because it's a surprise every time I'm like Googling and like, I'm like, oh, there's a new website that I haven't seen. And I, I, maybe you had seen this before, but they actually do these probabilistic forecasts of the magnitude of uh, ENSO. I, have you seen this website that I, that I slacked before? Oh, you yeah, have. it's actually, you and I've talked about it before too. I've already forgot about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. So for the current, the November, December, January, the forecast the probabilistic forecast is that there's a greater than a 92% chance that the La Nina will be persistent during this three-month season. There is a 57% chance that it will be a moderate, a moderate event, at least a moderate event, and a 14% chance that it will be a strong event. So, um, and then if you just move forward one three-month season, so sort of the heart of our winter, December, January, February, you know, it, again, it's like a 52, 50% chance of, of it being a, a moderate event and a small chance of it being a strong event. So my take, and, and almost a, a certain event that it, it will be it, it will be weak. So my take is that we got La Nina, it's gonna be around for at least the heart of the win winter. And it looks like if we were to, you know, just bet on this, if we were to believe this this forecast, that our, our, our best bet would be on a sort of a moderate event. That makes sense. And, and Typically, in a double dip, the second La Nina is weaker uh, than, than the first. And last year, remind us, so we were borderline strong, right? Moderate to strong. I think, I think that the, the strongest temperature anomaly or the coolest temperature anomaly ended up being like, what, 1.4 1, 1. degrees Celsius or something. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, 1.3, actually, last year. So, so let's talk a little bit about this double dip because this is a curious feature, right? Like we don't often talk about double dips in, in, in El Nino's. And so if you look at the historical record, a couple things bubbled to the surface. One, we're, we only have 20 in the observational record. We only have 20 La Nina's to draw from. So it's not a huge sample size. 
which is kind of crazy when we think about how much, well, there's good modeling behind this too. So I don't want to like discredit, like I, I don't want to be misunderstood that there's really good modeling. We understand the dynamics, but nonetheless, when we're trying to find statistical relationships and really trying to understand the dynamics, like we don't have a lot of, we don't have a big sample size to both go from. That being said, so we have 20 La Nina events in the, in the observational record. Of the 20, so there were 12 first year La Nina events. And then for, the, for, 12 of the, for those 12 events, the second year, eight of them were double dip La Ninas. That's how you get 20, 12 plus, plus, plus eight. So in other words, 12 events, eight of the 12 events were double dip La Ninas and, and two La Ninas in that first year ended up becoming El Ninos and then another two ended up becoming neutral. So they're, they're quite common for La Nina. Now that's not the case for, for El Nino. Mike, I looked into this. I have to say that there's some really good papers that I don't understand. So I'm, I'm relying on a sort of synthesis and our colleagues from NOAA actually that, that spend a lot of time trying to communicate the complexities of, of El Nino and La Nina to the public on their what, what is a really good resource, I think, and some really brilliant scientists write it. Um, it's called the Inso blog, but they, they sort of tackled this. And so let me, let me try to summarize the, at least conceptually, what's going on here. And I think you have to think about Enso and it's sort of two phases, you know, discarding neutral as like the middle phase. Like we tend to think of El Nino and La Nina as these sort of opposite phases as well. They're, they're not opposite in, in their characteristics. So an El Nino event are warmer uh, sea surface temperatures, above average sea surface temperatures. La Nina events are cooler than average sea surface temperatures. But the locus of the, 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 the strong anomalies are different. So they don't occur in the same part of the Pacific Ocean ba Basin. That is to say that in El Nino events, the, the warm waters are shifted more to the east and the uh, cold waters in La Nina events are shifted more to uh, the West. So that difference matters. The other thing is that El Ninos tend to, to have greater anomalies. So you can get an, an El Nino with, let's say, an average of two and a half degrees Celsius above the long-term average, whereas La Ninas are, 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 are less so. So the, the intensity of the, of the sea surface temperature pattern changes as well as the spatial pattern of the of the water and 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 then that that those two changes that at asymmetry matters for um the the atmospheric and ocean feedback and and basically and it gets really complicated nonlinear dynamics this is where my eyes glaze over and I, I i don't really understand it but conceptually what's what's going on is is that it, during an El Nino event, there is because the winds slacken, the easterlies slacken during an El Nino event. There is more efficient export of that warm water that's building up uh, in the tropical Pacific than during La Nina events, and so it's the El Nino events sort of turn over quicker. So there, that warm water is able to move out uh, of that area at a quicker rate than during La Nina events, and and so consequently that that sort of feedback isn't kicked into the opposite state as quickly during La Nina's than, than, than El Nino's. And consequently you see, you often see this 
two-year La Nina event, double dip La Nina event. Uh, and, and, but, but, but also, as Mike pointed out, the second go around tends to be weaker. And there's a lot of still unanswered questions for this. And obviously I probably didn't do the, 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 the complexity of that justice, but I tried. Mike, you got anything to add there? Did you learn something? Yeah, I, I think that we might want to do kind of an maybe an explainer too, to explain to each other how we think about, about El Nino and La Nina and the, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. I was trying to remember the term, but there's a, there's a term in the literature that talks about or thinks about the El Nino Southern Oscillation in terms of sort of charging up the West Pacific with energy. And then that energy gets released during El Nino events. And as you said, is dispelled uh, and dis it's basically exhausted to the North and South. And then La Nina doesn't have that same kind of sort of charging release kind of mechanism, which I think allows it to have sort of, it can kind of kind of come in and out of neutral and La Nina state a little bit differently, asymmetrically than you'd see with an El Nino event. Yeah, exactly. And maybe just to pull back and, and, and say what's important here, it's to think about these two phases a little bit differently. Like we can't think about, and particularly when we're thinking about the future, like what happens to El Nino might not happen to La Nina and vice versa. These things have different expression. They look different. They cause different teleconnections. They're opposite phases of the same kind of process, but they express themselves uh, differently. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's, that's the big point. The indices go, you know, they go positive, negative, and they, they, you know, they kind of trace sort of in a clearly not a predictable sinusoidal path over time because of their, their complex nonlinearity and the complex dynamics between them. And I think it's, it's why it's so hard to do seasonal forecasting or seasonal outlooks because they're all based on mostly based on the state of El Nino Southern Oscillation in say this sort of spring, summer, fall period to do the outlook for the winter. And those outlooks themselves have for the El Nino Southern Oscillation have so much uncertainty due to this complexity. So that sort of begs the, begs the question then, Mike, well, what, what, what does this mean, you know, particularly in the context of the upper Colorado River Basin, the upper uh, Rio Grande Basin, what does this mean? What do we think it's going to play out in terms of, of rainfall and snowpack. I don't know, <laughs> honestly. You know, like I, you can go back and look at, say, the last of the double dips. And, but, you know, I'm not sure these analogs are going to be all that, you know, apropos. If you go to the, the, the Climate Prediction Center seasonal outlooks, the probability anomalies, you know, meaning this sort of certainty in the precipitation outlooks are going to be across the southern half of the southwest. So you already see New Mexico and into Texas with a kind of a stronger probability anomaly than you even see into Arizona. And you see it fade off as you get into the upper basin. So I don't know. I think anything is possible for this upcoming winter for the upper basin. I think Arizona is going to struggle to get to average. And I think the southern part of the state probably will be drier than average. It's just that's typically what plays out with these La Nina events. And I think New Mexico is going to, is really going to struggle as well, um, getting to the end of this winter. Yeah, I think you're right, Mike. It's going to struggle to be a, uh, a wet winter, but, but I think, you know, maybe we can sort of weather that a little bit with the, the monsoon season we had in Southern Arizona. And it, it, it really is in my mind, all eyes focused on the higher country to our North. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I, I think that we just don't have a lot to go on for the upper basin at this point. You know, I'm, ju- I'm just peeking at the the 2012 precip in the spring. So thinking of the second year of that, that multi-year La Nina and that it's not good, you know, so the Southwest and proper actually had pretty good precipitation in November and December. So 2011, you know, going into 2012. So, you know, I think, I think it's often related to these kind of troughs and kind of plumes of moisture that can come up with atmospheric rivers. And I think we, we did okay there, but if you look at sort of January through the rest of the spring, it was very dry across Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah and Colorado as well. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed. <laughs> I know it's not a great spot to be in for sure. There is a one recent paper, um, a review article about ENSO in a warming world, and I just want to get myself up to up to speed on on sort of the current state of uh, of knowledge related to that because. ENSO is a leading driver of wintertime rainfall variability, which is so critical and, you know, a major question about how things will change in the future is about how ENSO will change. And and I I know, you know, from the last time I sort of did a deep dive into the state of the knowledge, I know that there's, you know, a whole bunch of questions about whether or not we even know, whether or not we have the tools available to understand and so in the future, which calls into question the precipitation. But I think it's it, it's also worth saying that it's a different ballgame with temperature. We've said this before. And just in terms of the Colorado River snowpack, there's been good modeling studies that suggest that just the, uh, uh, the sensitivity of water runoff is something like for every degree of warming, runoff in the Colorado goes down by about 6%. Uh, and yep. that's just... A, a temperature signal. It's not a. It's not so much a rainfall or snow or uh, snow signal. So yeah. But nonetheless, the the other side of the equation, the, the rain and, and snow side of it, is important. So may, maybe we should think about reading some of those papers that have come out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to to kind of reflect on that as we're watching the conditions unfold across the the region and just to try to get our heads around what we what we might expect because, you know what what would it look like? I mean, we'd have to have something pretty remarkable happen across the, um, the upper basin to really change the, the story at this point. Well, to markedly change the, the, the story, I think you're right. But I, I also think it does seem like given the, the increases in temperature that no longer does sort of an average year produce right. the same amount of, of, of runoff. We actually have to have, you know, a pretty good winter, a pretty much above average winter to have like a good water runoff year. And so in those conditions, uh, you know, we're stacking the deck against us in, in, in terms of snowpack. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I mean, I think like a good winter will, will, will change the, the short-term picture, but we're still within this longer-term trend that, I mean, we need to flip in the regime. We need to go back to like pre-2000. We need a pluvial. To, to we need play. a pluvial. So we, we need what? Miracle March, fantastic February, jubilant January, dang awesome December. And what's what would be November? I don't I was trying to I, I needed alliteration here now. I, I know I need to have like a <laughs> this was great fun. Thanks everybody for tuning in and, and look out for we we've got a double dose of uh of two pods to go with our double dip La Nina. So uh, enjoy everybody and we'll come back in a 
uh, in a month and, uh, and hopefully we'll have a, a rosy snowpack condition to talk about. Thanks. Bob. Exactly. See y'all. Right. This is like a tongue twister. Yeah, I thought you were going to make me do this. Try to explain the differences. I did learn something. Yeah, I, I, I am a student. I'm sorry, I got a cat who's really, really insistent about his opinion of the El Nino Southern Oscillation. I waned there at the end, but we pulled through.